Thank you, Stu, very much. Well, good morning, everyone. It is delightful to see all of you here today. So grateful for, as Brother Willis mentioned, a full house of the Lord as we come together to worship Him in spirit and in truth by His grace. Well, we are continuing on in our study of the life of David, and particularly as that life reveals to us something of his mind and behaviors and, and thought patterns that tell us something about um, why he is termed the man who is after God's own heart. So, with that in mind, we'll turn to 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 22, once again. I'm going to begin reading at verse 6 and read on to the end of the chapter. 1 Samuel 22, beginning at verse 6, and if you're able, I would invite you please to stand with me for the reading of God's holy word. Now Saul heard that David was discovered and the men who were with him. Saul was sitting at Gibeah under the tamarisk tree on the height with his spear in his hand and all his servants were standing about him. And Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Hear now, people of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds that all of you have conspired against me? No one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as at this day. Then uh, answered Doeg the Edomite, who stood by the servants of Saul. I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob, to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub. And he inquired of Yahweh for him and gave him provisions and gave him the sword of Goliath, the Philistine. Then the king sent to summon Ahimelech the priest, the son of Ahitub, and all his father's house, the priests who were at Nob, and all of them came to the king. And Saul said, Here now, son of Ahitub. And he answered, Here I am, my lord. And Saul said to him, Why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, in that you have given him bread and a sword and have inquired of God for him, so that he has risen against me to lie in wait as at this day? Then Ahimelech answered the king, And who among all your servants is so faithful as David, who is the king's son-in-law and captain over your bodyguard and honored in your house? Is today the first time that I have inquired of God for him? No. Let not the king impute anything to his servant or to all the house of my father, for your servant has known nothing of all this, much or little. And the king said, You shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's house. And the king said to the guard who stood about him, Turn and kill the priests of Yahweh, because their hand also is with David. And they knew that he fled and did not disclose it to me. But the servants of the king would not put out their hand to strike the priests of Yahweh. Then the king said to Doeg, You turn and strike the priests. And Doeg the Edomite turned and struck down the priests, and he killed on that day 85 persons who wore the linen ephod. And Nob, the city of the priests, he put to the sword both man and women. Uh, man, man and woman, child and infant, ox, donkey and sheep, he put to the sh sword. 
But one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. And Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the priests of Yahweh. And David said to Abiathar, I knew on that day when Doeg the Emite was there that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. Stay with me. Do not be afraid. For he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me you shall be in safekeeping. God adds his blessing to the reading and hearing of his word. Please be seated. When I say to you the word betrayal, I expect that it stirs up an emotional response in you as you consider times in your life when you yourself have been betrayed or perhaps in your heart know that you have betrayed someone else. Emotions such as anger, sorrow, guilt, confusion, or perhaps some combination of all of them are just some of the emotions that you may experience when you consider this whole thought of being betrayed. Now, for some here, maybe the betrayals of your life have been smaller, perhaps occasional promises that have been uh, broken uh, that certainly are painful, but they're not necessarily life-altering. But for others, the betrayals that you have experienced and some maybe even experiencing at this present time have been devastating betrayals. Whether small or great, betrayal cuts you deeply. It can turn you to bitterness, it can turn you to a vengeful spirit even, rather quickly. But those kinds of responses are truly self-destructive. They essentially ensure that the betrayer, quote-unquote, wins. And it certainly does not uh, do you any good whatsoever. But nonetheless, betrayal is not something that we just pass off and think of as just, oh, well, it doesn't matter. It absolutely matters. It's painful. It hurts. It's difficult and can derail us from uh, finding a joy in our salvation and our walk with the Lord. And, and when those betrayals maybe even happen inside the walls of the house of God, it, it can just remove all joy for coming together with God's people, as well as wondering where is God in all of this. So, is it possible to flourish even in times of betrayal? And I think that this passage here, combined with what David, with what David says in response to it in Psalm 52, which we'll read a little later, uh, God willing, David demonstrates even in something like this, that yes, it is indeed possible to flourish even through the worst attacks of the wicked. So let's take a look at this part of David's story as we've just read here in 1 Samuel 
22. Now I want to give you some background here. And my purpose here is not to, to belabor all of these points. Um, my purpose is to help us as we examine betrayal and pain in, in our own life in light of the betrayals that David experienced here. And as you can see there, I've got seven in your notes, note page there. There's seven points of betrayal, at least seven points of betrayal. There, even as I read through this again, as I was reading to you, I went, well, that could even be an eighth one. Um, there's a lot of betrayal going on here. When we look at events like this, it's, a, it's tempting to just kind of read through and go, man, man that was bad. Boy, that's really upsetting. That had to be devastating. And then we just move on. But perhaps as we go through and look at these fronts of betrayal, you may, uh, as you think of your, your own experiences, find some parallels in principle with the sort of things that David experienced and how he understood, how he interpreted the events that were going on there in the court of Saul and what was happening there with the priests of Nob and, and come to grips with, uh, as bad as our betrayals are, there can truly not be any excuse for any of us, even in times of betrayal, to go, well, this is just too bad for me to find any cause of thanksgiving, rejoicing, or peace, even, and certainly I could never flourish through this, it's just too awful. What David went through, and those with him, uh, is horrific. The first one is, it starts right off there in verse 6. Now that Saul heard that David was discovered. First front of betrayal. Someone has told Saul of David's location. And the, the use of the term discovered tells you that someone was out there looking. Someone was wanting to turn David in. So they were going, there, there, was, there were those that should have been supportive of David. By now, I can't imagine that anyone in all Israel doesn't know that God has uh, anointed David to be the next king, that the Spirit of God has departed from Saul and has, has come upon David. There is no excuse for any citizen of Israel to betray David in this way, knowing that Saul is setting out to kill him. But somebody does. And that betrayal is bad enough. We might be tempted to just say, well, yeah, that's, that's horrible. And if that was happening to us, that someone is out there looking for something that they can find fault with so that they can turn you in, so to speak, and undo you undermine you, breaking all common faith and decency. Pretty tough. And yet that's just the first and simplest betrayal. The second front, even though Saul says, no one has, no one's told me about my son, um, I think Saul is, uh, is lying there. Um, I mean, Dave, uh, Jonathan has been defending David, so perhaps Saul just has suspected it and certainly has accused Jonathan of, of uh, 
not uh, supporting his father, which of course wasn't true. But this betrayal um, that uh, of Saul himself against his son, accusing his son of sedition, uh, Jonathan, whom David regarded as, you know, closer than a brother in his love and respect and regard for him. The betrayal of Jonathan here by his father would have been deeply uh, felt by David. So betrayal, we feel it when those we love are betrayed as well, do we not? When those that we care for have been falsely accused, been turned on, uh, it hurts us. Sometimes it hurts us, I think, perhaps even more than when it's done to us because of those that we love. Third front of betrayal. Someone has fed Saul's delusional paranoia with this lie of a conspiracy. There has never been a conspiracy to depose Saul. David's never been interested in that at all. Taking Saul out of the picture is God's decision. David knows that. David's not trying to rush the calendar. David hasn't set up a network of spies. David has, unlike Saul, who apparently has, David hasn't done anything to work against Saul in any respect. And yet, Saul here uh, is accusing him of this, and there, are, there seem to be plenty in Israel who are willing to go along with this and find then justification and their own right to work against David for their own purposes. Um, some perhaps well-meaning. Oh, I've got to support Saul. He's, he's the king. Um, and denying what uh, the Lord has said regarding David. But uh, again, this, uh, this aspect of betrayal here adds fuel to the fire. On the fourth front of betrayal, Saul himself has betrayed David by not supporting his ascension to the throne. If Saul were a godly, righteous man, he would acknowledge what God has said, he would humble himself before the Lord and do everything that he could do uh, to help David eventually achieve the throne in God's good timing. But Saul is working against him and working against him and working against him, betraying God and betraying the Lord as well. What a sad commentary. In this incident alone, Saul shows himself to be arrogant, insecure. None of you is sorry for me. Threatening. Isn't it interesting? He's holding his spear. He's using that spear as a scepter. Of course, how has he been using that spear in the past? Primarily to chuck it at David and at his own son. Saul is... He's, he's using that spear as a scepter to say, you, you defy me and I'm going to pin you to the wall. Uh, only, only weak people use that kind of, of, of threat to lead. He's 
utterly self-absorbed. Everything in this, it's all about him. Um, he's paranoid, looking around, expecting, looking, seeing, uh, seeing uh, conspiracy, seeing threats that aren't there. He's utterly corrupt. Uh, did you catch? First of all, he surrounds himself by his yes men, his own, the men of his own tribe. All you sons of, of Benjamin. He's got all the house of Benjamin around. He, he doesn't want anybody else around there. Everybody else is kind of on the outskirts like Doeg. Um, besides the fact that he's nepotistic in his corruption, he's also, is David going to give you this? Is David going to put you in this position? Is David going to do that? You read that, what he's saying is, David can't, but I will. I'm the one who's going to advance you. The guy's corrupt, dishing out political favors for support. Um, he's uh, willing to believe the worst of a faithful servant. He's hateful. He's vengeful. He's heartless. He's unjust. Ultimately, murderous. His little whiny pity party demonstrates just how weak he really is. And uh, but he does all this holding court under a tree on a high place. That's a location typically used by the judges of old in days not, you know, too uh, too far gone. Which tells me that that Saul is not only trying to assert his civil leadership, but he's also trying to to put forward that he's the spiritual leader of Israel too. The man is clearly all about the show. But the show is so important to him that he will betray a faithful servant, the one anointed of God, rather than give way to the Lord's will. Fifth front of betrayal. Doeg, the Edomite. Now if you know anything about the Edomites, uh, they are descendants from who? Anybody remember? Esau. There's been enmity between the sons of Esau and the sons of Jacob ever since Jacob and Esau parted company. And Edom has worked against Israel in the past. And they would continue to do so. The prophets would speak against Edom. Judgment against them for failing to uphold and support their, their brethren. So who knows what has been uh, inbred into, into Doeg regarding his uh, feelings towards the children of Israel. But uh, I think from the events here you can tell that there's no love lost in his heart for sure. And Doeg betrays David as well. Doeg is the chief of the herdsmen. David's the chief of soldiers of, of Saul's army. Doeg should have been supporting David. Obviously, he does not. He betrays David. He does it deceitfully on top of that. He's trying to advance his own position. Now, it's interesting that Doeg's deceit, his betrayal, was not in the things that he actually said. Everything that he said about David uh, and what Ahimelech did was the truth. David did, and come, did indeed come to Ahimelech. He was indeed fed. He did indeed get a sword. 
uh, the priests uh, inquired uh, of the Lord for David. All of that's true. What he doesn't, it's what he doesn't say and where the deceit comes in. It's what he left out. He doesn't mention that David came to Ahimelech and said, I'm here on Saul's business. Remember we talked about that a while back, that that lie was going to come back to bite David, and it does here. David should have just been honest with Ahimelech. And then Ahimelech could have made an honest uh, decision. Ahimelech was being honest. He was just operating in good faith. There was no betrayal or no, no treason or anything on Ahimelech's part. He thought he was doing what Saul would have wanted to happen. But Doeg left all that out because it did not suit his purpose. Now whether Doeg had some grudge against David personally, just jealousy for his advancement or whatever, uh, a grudge against the priest for some reason, or just a general hatred of the Jews, or all of the above, Doeg was acting clearly in his own interests uh, to gain favor with Saul. Now, why Doeg was at Nob in the first place, we, we don't know. It's an interesting thought that it's, we're told back in uh, chapter uh, 21 that, uh, he would, that Doeg was detained before Yahweh. Whether he had gone there to perform some vow or perhaps it was over a Sabbath day and so there was not going to be any travel or business or anything else, so he just stayed there and waited. We're not told, but for some reason, he was there nosing around. Maybe he was looking to find fault with the priests. He's a scheming kind of guy. Perhaps that's why Ahimelech trembled when David showed up as he and his family may have been less inclined to recognize Saul's ongoing reign because perhaps they were um, more interested in upholding what, what God had ordained. But in any case, uh, isn't it interesting that Doeg, Doeg did not immediately go to Saul? He waited. He looked for the opportune moment. This guy's a snake. But he betrayed those he should have been honoring. And he betrayed both David and the priests. Certainly they have done nothing wrong. On the sixth front of betrayal, Saul, again, betrays his God by ordering his servants to kill the priests. What a betrayal of God himself. And that's exactly, though, what he does. And even though Ahimelech's response, Ahimelech's response is awesome. Quite a contrast here, actually, which I think is, is rather remarkable. It tells you the, the very clearly the nature of Ahimelech's own conscience before God. When David shows up, the servant of Saul, Ahimelech trembled in the temple, perhaps because he knew in his heart he, that Ahimelech was not fully on board with Saul. I'm surmising that, but I think it's a safe surmise. But as he comes before Saul, Ahimelech, is, his integrity is intact. He knows that he has been honorable and a faithful servant of Saul, as well as the Lord. So there's no trembling here. It's a great answer. 
The reasoning is spot on. It's unmistakable to anybody of any clarity or any integrity that Ahimelech hasn't done a single thing wrong. And what does Saul do? He acts like Ahimelech never said a thing. He's already made up his mind. He would not listen to this explanation. And so he gives this order to kill the priests. Seventh, Saul's servants that are standing around, they too have betrayed their God. They betrayed God by not stopping Saul and Doeg from murdering the priests, for one thing. They could have. You remember, it would come on a little later that uh, when... uh, they're fighting the Philistines and Jonathan and his armor bearer go out and they, Saul has taken this oath. Nobody, nobody can uh, eat anything all day or they'll die if they do. Jonathan hasn't heard this. He goes out. He kills a bunch of Philistines, has some honey, comes back, feels, feels great. It's like, hey, let's, let's, uh, let's chow down. There's plenty. And the people tell him what's going on. And Saul wants to kill his own son again. And the people stop him. No, no, you're not doing this. They should have done it here. Because what Saul was commanding was clearly murder. And not just murder of, it's bad enough, it's just the average person, but it's, it's by killing the priest, Saul is basically putting aside the very authority of the God who put him in, in office. It's a ultimately a betrayal of God himself. So you look at this betrayal, and it is absolutely enormous. How could you possibly flourish in the midst of this? But wait, it gets worse. Because in addition to all of this this framework of betrayal, it all ramps up when Doeg, having killed 85 priests there in uh, the it's not under the tree there, around the tree there uh, if you want to call it where Saul was holding court he takes he goes from there and he goes to the city of the priests with Saul's blessing and wipes out that city man, women, child, child livestock all of it. So this atrocity that takes place, it just gets multiplied. Now why Yahweh ordained that the priests and their families be murdered at the hand of Doeg is never explained. And honestly, as you read that, along with me, did it make any sense to you? It doesn't make any sense to me. I mean, the priests were apparently faithful servants, both of Yahweh and the king. And their families certainly had nothing at all to do with any of this stuff. There is so much here that we do not know, of course. Perhaps Saul was aware that the priests were on the fence regarding his, his reign. I don't know. It's, not, it's never told. That's beside the point. The Lord didn't want us to know. 
but somehow Yahweh's plan to install David as king is advanced by this. And at least in this way. This incident shows that Saul does not have a shred of integrity or legitimacy left. Anyone going forward from this point that supports Saul can have no excuse for supporting a murderer. Now, why the priests? Uh, presumably they were unarmed. Remember uh, um, when David came to see Ahimelech there uh, where the tabernacle was there at Nob? Uh, Ahimelech said, well, there's no swords here. Right. Except for just one. You got, we got the sword of Goliath. Or, you know, stuck in a corner over here. That was it. So presumably they're unarmed. But why they gave no resistance to being killed? And there's 85 of them and there's one doeg. You know, do a dog pile. You know, but for whatever reason, they didn't. Um, it's, it's kind of a matter of wonder. Though, if you get out of the Western mindset, which we are, are run by, and our American independent uh, stand for our rights kind of thing, the Eastern mindset is not that way, particularly when it comes to despotic rulers, tyranny, uh, authority that way. Um, well, a number of years ago, uh, well, several times in several visits to Cambodia, and every time I go through the killing fields and, and um, Tolslang Prison, and you see the thousands and thousands and thousands of people that stood in line waiting to be executed <laughs> by a bunch of Khmer Rouge soldiers, most of whom were teenagers. Sure, they had, some, they had some weapons and the others didn't. But they could have easily been overwhelmed and people just stood there fatalistically and waited for it to happen. Perhaps it was the same kind of mindset here. Well, you know, kings have life and death authority, so, okay, can't fight this. Perhaps that was the case. That doesn't make it any easier for us to try to understand why the Lord allows us. All I could come up with, and I'm sure there's got to be something else beside it, but uh, is that, for one thing, God is sovereign. He knows what he's doing. And honestly, uh, because of sin, death comes into the picture. Because of hatred, this ultimately comes back on Saul as the ultimate murderer here. And Saul is no longer, if he, uh, he's no longer legitimate by any, any, any way, shape, or form. Now there's one slightly encouraging detail here and that Saul's servants were hesitant. They were reluctant. They, didn't, they were not going to kill the priests. They, they refused. Good on them. That's great. However, they made no effort to stop Doeg, which they should have. They made no effort to stop Saul, which they should have. And presumably, when Doeg's bloodlust took him over to the city of Nob, um, that would have been a whole lot more than one guy could have done. So presumably, some others uh, changed their mind and, and uh, went along with him. That When they saw that 
that he gained favor with Saul by doing this. Others who were eager for favor at the expense of others joined in and uh, did a genocide in that city. So when David heard of this atrocity and the magnitude of the betrayals all set in, we can only imagine the grief and the rage that it caused him and those with him. And how could he possibly deal with the emotional and mental trauma that such violent wickedness and hatred had caused? Well, we will find out. And I really hate to stop here, but I'm going to because I'm not going to shortchange Psalm 52. We're going to find out, how did David go on after this? He, as you saw there in 1 Samuel 22, he felt the personal weight of responsibility of this. And of course, he was not personally responsible for the death of the priests and all, but he took it very personally. Because he was there. He saw Doeg. He didn't take any action against Doeg at that point. There was nothing for him to go on except a, you know, little red flag going up in his mind going, danger, danger, danger. Something's not right here. But he had nothing to go on. You, you can't fault him that way. Except for the fact that he... He lied, trying to, I think, trying to protect the priests, give them culpable deniability. But when you're working with a madman, that doesn't work. So let's, let's draw this to a conclusion today. Before we get to uh, actually, all right, what do we do in those kinds of circumstances? How do, we, how do we go on? How do we do more than go on? How do we thrive even? when we were betrayed. Think back again to times in your life when you've experienced betrayal of one sort or another. Someone's broken a vow to you. Someone's attacked you unjustly. Someone has done everything that they can to destroy your ability to do anything. Some of you have experienced betrayals on that level in this room. And some of you, um, whether through your tender years or through the grace of God, have not uh, had to go through that horrific of betrayal, have not experienced and witnessed uh, uh, just incredibly horrible things that you somehow feel like you had something to do with, even if you didn't, that shakes your world. If you haven't experienced it yet, you may very well in God's providence. Or perhaps your betrayals are more, well, for for young people it can be, well, mom and dad promised to take me so so and so or go do this and that or the other, but they didn't do it, they weren't able to do it, and you feel hurt by that. Even in those kinds of things, how can you deal with those recognizing that this is in the hand of God. Ultimately, that is the answer. 
As Reformed believers, we tend, do we not, to greatly emphasize the sovereignty of God. And we're really good on talking about God's sovereignty until something like this happens. And then, not surprisingly, it's a little harder to talk about God's sovereignty. But I want to ask you this question as we close. Because this is going to have an incredible impact upon what we're going to see next week, God willing, in Psalm 52. Let me ask you this question. I want it to sink in. How sovereign is God? How sovereign is God? When you, like David, understand the magnitude of that question, then you will be able to say the kinds of things that he says in Psalm 52. But if you think that sovereignty is a fleeting thing and is only partial and the bounds of it stop where your comfort level begins, then you'll never be able to say what David says in Psalm 52. Bottom line. So this week, you've got some homework. Answer that question in your mind and give a good look at Psalm 52. And together, then we'll go through it and see that yes, indeed, you can flourish even through the worst attacks of the wicked. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. Even when we look at passages like this that turn our stomach, when we consider the horrific hatred and wickedness of people who should know better but betray your servants, betray you. Hurting everyone else for their own advancement. Lord, I pray that on the one hand, when these things occur to, uh, in our lives, that we will not despair. We will not collapse under the weight of it. But that we will be able to carry on by your grace as we rest in your sovereignty. And Lord, as we consider these things, keep us from ever betraying each other and betraying you. I pray, Lord God, that you would grant us this request so that you will be glorified among us, that your peace would reign among us, and that no matter what happens in our lives, that we, by your grace, will flourish. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.